sit down with the borrower, find out what their situation is, and re-modify or restructure the debt so that it fits into their financial capacity. That is the most profitable way as far as residual income is concerned. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. As promised, I've got Troy Wood back again. He is the one of the people that has been doing actually mortgage notes for like 22 years. It's insane. Go back to the very last episode. If this is where you're starting, go back to the very last episode so that you can catch up. So I'm going to pause you here. Go back to the last episode. Listen to it. If you've already heard it, you're probably impressed with everything that we've been talking about so far. He's done things on Wall Street, helping people out of their to get home preservation, recreating debt, rewriting debt, restructuring debt, all this type of creative financing. And we got into a lot of the details. We have a few more questions that we couldn't get on the last episode. So I'm glad you're joining us back. All right. So I promised the listener that on this episode, we were going to get into a couple of questions. So let me start off there, Troy. What happened at the last crash? What's going to happen at this next crash? Is it similar? What is your specific strategy when it does what you think it's going to do? And do you have a projection on when it's going to happen? So that's kind of the the four-part question that I have for you. And I can split it up if you want. No. So what happened in the last crash real simply was people were over leveraged. You had values that were off the charts. You had excessive growth in the real estate markets nationwide as a whole. And the number one fueler of all of that was the stated income, stated asset lending model. And I'm, I'm not going to go into the history of that. I can tell you the history of it. It's rather interesting on how it even came to life, but that's what fueled it. The, um, so you, as I mentioned in the last episode, you had people that were doing you know, what they call first payment defaults, they were stripping the houses of their equity, putting the money in their pocket, and then leaving the lender holding the bag. There's not my prediction is not consistent with it, with a lot of other people's prediction. How does it differ specifically? Specifically, if you look at history, and history has a way of repeating itself. So the if you go back to 1890, okay, 1890, way before you and I were born, that was a depression era. Then you had 1930. That was a depression era. Then you had 1970, another depression era, era, which is oil embargo issues. Then you had 19 or uh, 2007, another depression era. So if you go, you've got 40-year cycles. Now the last one wasn't quite 40 years, a little bit less. But that was based on technology and global economics being intertwined as a whole. So it's sped up. So if you predict another 40-year cycle, which is what it's doing. Even if you apologies everywhere now, if you just cut it down, you got 2008, let's say 2008 was the start, you get 2018, then you get 2028, and you get 2038. So we're way down the road before a depression happened, meaning a huge air crash. Now, do I think there are going to be some corrections? There are already corrections going on in the marketplace. You're seeing it in California, we're seeing it here in Arizona, and you're seeing it in New York, which is typically where it starts outside going in. What I mean by corrections is People are not buying houses at the rate that they once were. 
You've got interest rates are bumped up right now. They're hovering around five and a quarter percent. So they're, they're moving up. So that's slowing down the economy. That's a positive thing. That's a controlled environment. And people that went out and wanted to buy houses have gone out and done that. And therefore, they're not necessarily going out and trading houses every two years like we were in the previous crash. So the next crash is not necessarily going to be tied to a lending crash or to a real estate crash. It's going to be outside of it. And I personally think that some of the things that are going to hold it back and hold it way off and keep it minimalized really has to do with the college debt that is on the shoulders of all these young uh, men and women who are coming out of college. As we went from $300 billion in college debt in 2008 up to now we're at $1.5 trillion worth of college debt in 2018. So huge amount of debt on the shoulders of young men and women across this country who are not rushing into the marketplace to buy houses and things of that nature. They're waiting till they get married, which is typically mid-30s. And the millennials, as people like to call them, I just call them young men and women, are really investing in experiences and not necessarily assets. So I don't see the crash being what other people do. My one prediction is this. There will be a, a small correction or slight correction in the market. I see it as being like about a 12 months. All right. So based on what you know about the last crash and you've been doing notes for 22 years, so that's why I'm asking. Uh -huh. And you kind of talked about your projections. Mm -hmm. What's your strategy? So what do you think you'll be buying? How do you think you'll be buying it? What are you doing to gear up for it? Just what is your strategy for the next cycle? My strategy for the next cycle is the same strategy I had for the last cycle. And that is we're going to buy, we're going to buy debt on the dime, you know, on the penny, a pennies on the dollar. And we're going to modify that debt. We're going to do forgiveness of debt. And then we're going to own the debt, debt free. So we may go out and buy you know, go out and raise capital. We just did a capital raise on our last, on our, on the fund that we're currently running and we'll leverage that out. We'll create a margin in the debt and then we'll sell it all off and I'll, and I'll keep my share. My goal is to have what I call debt-free debt, if that makes any sense. In other words, I want to continue to build my portfolio with no underlying debt in it, but then have the residual cash flow from those mortgages as a whole. Got it. Got it. All right. Let's see what else we have here. You said that when you were starting out, I believe you bought, you started by 8.6 or $8.4 million in California. Some, that was your first purchase? No, that, that was a purchase I did in 06. Oh, and six. I just, I wholesaled that to a friend of mine. It was a non-performing portfolio of California mortgages. So the actual debt amount was eight point. 8.4, 8.6. That's Correct. the unpaid balance, the UPB. Correct. How much did you buy it for? That one we paid 2.7. Actually, they paid 2.8 million for it. 2.7 million went to the seller and $100,000 went to me. Got it. All right, perfect. And then back to the last episode, mm -hmm. you said something, you noticed what was going on in the world and you said yeah. to yourself, can we raise money for this model? And what you ended up doing is you raised $30 million. You raised right. $30 million. And I believe that I remember you said this was from a fund, like a, a group that's out there that wanted to be 
part of what you were doing. Is that right? Exactly. It was raised from an international and domestic Wall Street hedge fund. They're uh, actually in New York, and they approached us. We kind of approached them. They approached us with similar goals in mind. The staff there was, they were from, came over from uh, Morgan Stanley, started their own fund, and they were doing, uh, actually, they were doing hard money lending to real estate investors on a street level model, but kind of onesie, twosie, threesie, foursie type stuff. They were using their private money to do that, and they wanted to just take it to a whole nother level. What was your track record before then? My track record before then, I think we had done at about that time, we had done around 6,000 or so transactions. So we had a pretty extensive track record. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. 22 million in seven weeks. Tell me a little bit more about that. You said you purchased 22 million and it only took you seven weeks. You bought it on. 10 to 15 cents on the dollar was first off first question was that with that 30 million from the the hedge fund that you were talking about yeah so we started out of the gate they they gave us a basically the 30 million was in the form of a line of credit and so we basically had a blank checkbook to go out and spend money there were checks and balances in place you know we weren't doing anything foolish like buying bentley's and lear jets but what we did is we went to places like we went to gmac at the time was selling off a lot of stuff. Goldman Sachs was selling off a lot of stuff. Goldman Sachs was one of the original mortgage-backed security firms at the time. So because we had inroads to these folks, as well as like UBS, Bank of Mellon, things like that, we were able to just literally knock on their door and say, okay, the market's crashing. Here's what we have. What do you have? And they were selling stuff. They were liquidating stuff off their books to clear their balance sheet of the what they referred to as toxic assets at the time. And they were because they were all going into default, as I mentioned, because of first payment issues and people being over leveraged, people weren't making their payments. So they were like, get these off the books before they capsize our portfolio. Awesome. All right. So I've got a few more questions here. What does reperforming mean? So there's a couple of different definitions. I'll tell you mine. The industry has its. My definition of a reperforming loan is somebody who starts making payments based on old terms or new terms and makes 12 consistent on-time payments, meaning they make a payment every month for 12 months straight. Some people think that that's a three-month model. It's not a three-month model. It's a 12-month model. Okay. So let, let me get into this. on. What you're, you've been doing for the last 22 years, mm-hmm. what are all of the exit strategies that you employ? Just let's list them so we can kind of see which ones we want to talk about. So when you say like with the notes themselves? The notes or the borrower, rehabbing the borrower, et cetera. What, you've purchased somebody's bad debt. Okay. What so, are all of the ways that you make money on it? So the primary way that we make money on it and the the most profitable way is to sit down with the borrower, meaning via Skype or or Zoom or even sending out a representative, sit down with the borrower, find out what their situation is and re-modify or restructure the debt so that it fits into their financial capacity. That is probably the most profitable way as far as residual income is concerned. The other thing is we'll buy it. If we can't get it back to performing, 
we'll turn around and sell it. We'll mark it up a few points and then sell it to somebody else. Sometimes when we do that, there's a change of heart with a borrower and they'll get back to reperforming with that person. Or we can foreclose on the property as a whole is the other side of it. And then when we do that, we like to sell it at the courthouse steps. We're not a fix and flip company. We don't have the team of people to go out there and fix up houses and do those things. So we like to sell it at the courthouse steps and let whoever buys it work their magic. And as far as we're concerned, they're doing a huge service to the industry by rehabilitating these houses, remodeling these houses, and revitalizing neighborhoods across the country. All right. Is there any others that we want to talk about that we want to mention? Those are those are the primary ones. I mean, when you get it back to reperforming, you can sell it off as a partial. You can sell off a portion of the portfolio and have the other portion of the portfolio be debt free. Those are some other exit strategies, but that's after it's reperforming. Okay. Let me ask you a couple questions then. You sure. sit down with the borrower virtually and you find out whether they want to restructure or modify the loan. That's the first step. Is that right? Yes. Okay. If they modify the loan or restructure the debt in mm-hmm. such a way that it used to show that they owed 100000 but uh-huh. after you do this, it shows that they owe just 80000 Okay. If mm-hmm. that happens, which I think is one of the possibilities, right? Sure. Forgiveness of debt. Uh-huh. Okay. What happens with that 20000 Are you sending a 1099 to the owner of that property that you forgave the 20000 and then they have to pay taxes on it or what? No. No. Okay. So we, we don't do that. We know that the banks do that. The difference between what we do and what the banks do is the banks, when they do lending, if it's a $100,000 loan, they gave you or they sent $100,000 to the title company and the title company dispersed accordingly. When we come in and we buy that $100,000 loan in a NPL format, we're paying, say, $50,000 for a $100,000 loan. So if we do a forgiveness of debt, say that 20000 as you mentioned, we don't need to write, send out a 1099 on it or anything of that nature. Because one, we can't claim that in our model. We can only claim what we invested, that 50000 So if we lose below the 50000 we'll occasionally do it. But we're big boys. And I'm not a big fan of penalizing people. I don't. I think there's enough hatred in the world and enough enough garbage in the world that I don't need to throw fuel on that fire. It doesn't benefit me to do it, and it doesn't benefit the homeowner to do it. The only one that it benefits, and it's a decision that I get to make, is Uncle Sam. And I think as long as you're paying your fair share in taxes, we're good type thing. And uh, we do pay fair, our fair share in taxes. So that would just penalize them and hurt them, and that's not something we're looking to do. Very, very interesting. Thank you for answering that. Let me just ask you. So there's other ways to modify and restructure debt. There's Mm -hmm. changing interest rates, right? That's one way. Changing, maybe just changing payments. Maybe just, if you just had to um, split that up, what would be the five-ish ways or however many there are Mm -hmm. that you can actually help a homeowner to stay in the property by modifying or restructuring their loan? So our number one way of helping homeowners stay in a property, what we usually find is they go through a cycle. And that cycle means that they hit on hard times, lost their job, somebody got ill, divorced, death, 
you know, those types of things. But then they tend to rise back up to where they were to some degree and that, because that's their comfort level as a whole. So we find that we can go back to a homeowner and say it's a $100,000 loan or a $100,000 unpaid principal balance, but they've got three years worth of non-payments on that loan. We can go back to that person and find out typically about 95% of the time, we find out that income-wise, they're doing great. They went through some hard times, got, got knocked down a little bit, but they're doing good. And they've got the money to make the payments, even based on the old rates and terms, because think about a lot of these loans are, are institutional loans. So they were originated at three, four, 5% interest rates. So low interest rates, they just can't afford to pay three years worth of back payments. And with the stability in the marketplace, as far as property values coming back up and being more stable, we usually find that there's not a lot of negative equity issues in the properties anymore. There's some pockets of those types of homes, but as a whole, we typically see that it's more on the positive equity side than the negative equity side. So what are the ways specifically to modify or restructure that can help both people, both parties? So here's what we do. We take that three years worth of non-payments and we use it as an incentive. We say, okay, legally you owe us this money, but legally our truth is I didn't have to pay for that money. I only had to pay for the unpaid principal balance. Not do you the tell them? Do you yeah. tell them? Okay. No, no, no. We don't tell them that. Okay. okay. We, we just simply spell out the numbers as it shows. And what we'll do is we'll set up the loan. We'll modify the loan based on maybe a, a rate, term. And we'll typically re-amortize it out over 30 years, not 40 like the banks like to do. And we'll forgive that debt. We'll forgive that $30,000 or that, th- I'm sorry, three years worth of payments based on a third, a third, a third. So if they make their payments on time for one year, we'll forgive a third of it. Second year, another third. Third year, another third. Now, if they pay off early on the loan, we'll still forgive that debt because if we paid 50 cents on the dollar and we get 100 cents on the dollar, we're okay with that. We still make great money along the way. That's probably our most popular modification that we do. Okay, so rate, term, And then forgiveness of payments. Those are the three. Yes. And then you could, it could be anywhere in between. You could do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. Perfect. So then we have, you could sell the note. That's another exit strategy. So who do you sell it to? Well, we sell the ones that we can't get back to modified model. We'll typically sell them to um, resellers or We'll sell them to private equity funds. We'll sell them to other hedge funds. We'll sell them to REITs. Uh, we'll sell them to even, uh, there's some pension groups out there that will buy them as well. Do you have students in the note space? Yeah, we've got about 19,000 in our database. Would you ever sell the notes to your students? Uh, from time to time, we will. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so strategy, exit strategy number one. Mm-hmm. Modify or restructure, and that could be rate, term, or forgiveness of payments. Yes. Next strategy number two: sell the note, and we talked about everybody that you could sell it to. So I, I have two questions on that. You okay. buy it at around what penny on the dollar, and you sell it at about what penny on the dollar if you're going to sell the note. We typically mark it up about three to five percent. So if we buy it for fifty percent, we'll mark it up to say fifty-five, and then sell it. Okay. And then for foreclosure, you said that there's a couple of strategies there. One of them is to sell them at with a realtor, uh-huh. but that's not a strategy you employ. 
You instead go to the courthouse steps. Now, my mind is just completely boggled because it seems like you can make a crazy amount more by selling it with an agent rather than just going to the courthouse and getting, again, pennies on the dollar. So can you please just kind of give me the philosophy on why you would do that? And perhaps it's just, Adam, you're wrong. I get way more by going to foreclosure. So if I do the realtor route, I have to complete the foreclosure. Then I have to clean up the property. Then I have to list it with the realtor and then they work their magic. So that's about a anywhere from 30 to 90 day model. And typically what they're going to bring back to me is an investor who probably was standing on the courthouse steps when it was happening in the first place. Because and then that investor is going to say, well, you know, you have it listed at 70,000, I'll give you 60,000, and that's all I'll give you because now I've got to remodel the whole house. And the after repair value might be 140, it might be 120, but it's today's condition. And that's, that's the angle in which they negotiate. So I understand that. So that being said, now I have to pay the realtor three or 6%, 4%, whatever that is, plus I got carrying costs, time, might have additional taxes. And I got forced placed insurance that's in place during that time period. So that eats away at my cost. Or I can avoid all that. I can take it to the courthouse steps. Let's say the unpaid principal balance is $100,000. And it could be more with the added interest and everything else. But for sake of conversation, 100 grand. Well, I only paid 50 grand for that house, for that deal. So I go to the courthouse steps. I've got some legal costs. I've got a few you know, short-term costs because, like, let's say Arizona. It's a 120-day cycle to get through the foreclosure. And if the foreclosure was already started with the previous owner of the loan, I can pick up where they left off. So that being said, I could even shorten that time frame. I go to the courthouse steps and I put out there the first opening bid on that deal being, say, $70,000. So the guys at the courthouse steps, they're looking at this, well, if I can pay seventy. dollars and I can put 20 into it, and I can sell it for 130, 140 after repaired value, then I've got, I'm meeting my margins. So I've got a captive audience right there. So why not sell it for 70, take my 10, $15,000 out of the deal, minus my foreclosure costs and things like that, short-term foreclosure costs, and walk away from it versus getting it back, listing it with a realtor who's going to tell me, hey, the house is worth, you know, $80,000 as is, and somebody comes along and says, I'll give you 70 or I'll give you 60 minus realtor fees and everything else. Okay, I have two questions on yeah. the foreclosure then. The first one is how much does it cost you for the auctioneer as opposed to the realtor fees that you would have had by listing it? The auctioneers are going to vary from state to state. Like here in Arizona, it's like, like $850 for the auctioneer. So it's not crazy, but like Louisiana, it's like six grand in Louisiana. I've seen it as high as like $12,000 because those are done by sheriffs and they're done their terms, their time, their money. So they get to make up their rates. Um, you say we don't do a lot of foreclosures in Louisiana. <laughs> Great. Thank you. And the next question that I have is you, I'm trying to go back and, and repeat what you said. Sure. Um, when you w- got into the details, you said something to the effect of, 
one of the reasons why you don't list it with the agent is because you save a lot of time. You save a lot of the foreclosure process, which I don't really understand what that means. And to, to help me understand that better, I think I need to ask you is, what does the purchaser, the buyer of that note or of that property at the foreclosure courthouse steps, what exactly are they getting? Are they getting your debt and now they have to foreclose on it or are they getting the property? And if they're getting the property, what happens in the foreclosure process that makes it so that they don't have to go through the same steps that you would have had to go through if you kept it and listed it with a realtor? Yeah, so great question. So if I'm the lien holder, which I am, because I bought the debt, I own the debt. So I'm basically Bank of Troy. And I take it to the Maricopa County foreclosure auction down here in downtown Phoenix. But when I do that, I'm doing the same thing that the bank would do, B of A, Wells Fargo, Chase, and basically modeling exactly what they do. So anybody on the receiving end of that, meaning any buyer, they get a home, they get a free and clear deed to that home at that auction. Or not, it's typically about five days later, but they get a free and clear deed on that property. So any and all debt is wiped out on that property with the exception of property taxes and IRS debt. IRS debt is not attached to the property any any longer. So an IRS has 121 days to respond and basically come after the property. Most investors won't buy it if it has IRS debt to begin with, which is fine. But because of that, they get a property free and clear deed to start their remodeling send the remodeling team in the very next day or the week after whatever's in their schedule and start working their magic. Awesome. So we have one last question. We're going to take a break and we'll get to it. This last question, stick with us because we're talking about back in 2009, he said he made 90% IRR in 11 months, which is basically doubling your investor money in just one year. So when we get back, I'm going to ask him what's going on nowadays. So we'll be right back. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Ecospace Real Estate. Ecospace is a Denver, Colorado-based real estate company with a national reach. They provide a unique offering called Flip Your Home, where they utilize their own internal fix and flip crews to flip their clients' homes prior to listings. Their brokerage clients gain, on average, 23000 of instant equity, which is then taken 100% tax-free. If you'd like to learn more about gaining additional tax-free equity in your home prior to listing, then please visit ecospace.com. All right, Mr. Troy, thank you for being with us. Thanks for doing two episodes with us. I was blown away when I found out that you were doubling your money that fast. When we're looking these days at multifamily, we're looking at doing 90% IRR in about five years. Mm -hmm. So my jaw dropped. It hit the floor. And um, let's find out, can you still get these 90% IRRs in 11 months or is it something else these days? I wish it was still the case. Right now, IRRs in the NPL space, I'm good quality NPLs, meaning properties that are 150,000 and above. IRRs right now are running around 22 22 to 25% as a whole, that's after modified and restabilized uh, assets, and that's holding on to it. Now, if you sell it, let's say you run it out for 12 months and then sell it, then your IRR is gonna go up a little bit. Back in the day, because we were able to buy so inexpensively, you know, 10, 
five, ten. I mean, I think the best buy we ever did was one and a half percent of unpaid principal balance on an eighty-six million dollar trade. But the that's an exception to the rule. But we were buying five, ten, fifteen percent of unpaid principal balance. A lot of those loans back in the day were written at a little bit higher interest rates as well. You're typically seeing consistently eight, nine percent type interest rates because we were buying stated income, stated asset liens, which had a higher interest rate versus the full doc liens that have lower interest rate. Because we were able to get them modified and back on track, we had a, a much higher rate of return. We're not seeing those. I don't think we'll see those types of deals or those days during our lifetime ever again type thing. All right. You answered my other question. I was going to ask if what happens that you kind of were um, projecting in, you know, after the 2020 elections, mm-hmm. if that happened and it kind of went down, you don't think you'll be able to do IRRs of 90% again? I don't see it happening. I, I see we could probably get it up to closer to 50 in the market space. Right now in shadow inventory, the banks are sitting on about $420, $430 billion worth of non-performing loans. They're not rushing to sell them. They're holding on to some of those for extended periods of time, which ultimately I think is going to hurt the bank because you've got a depreciating liability that's just sitting there literally collecting dust and nobody's managing them. People are living in their houses, not making payments, not maintaining the house, things like that. So they'll eventually come out in the market space which will be good. It'll be good. But I don't see I don't see those types of returns anytime soon. All right. So you're saying what was that? Did you say four hundred billion? Is that right? Yeah, four hundred billion plus. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying that it's hurting the bank because it's sitting there collecting dust, you know, not making money. Right. But would it hurt the bank more if they let them out too fast? Wouldn't it hurt them more because I feel like four hundred billion jumping out in just one year of these properties would change the amount of supply versus the amount of demand, which would actually drive prices down, which may in turn make their other performing debt less valuable. What are your thoughts? Well, they wouldn't allow it all to go out at once. Right now, it's kind of a trickle effect. You're seeing right now in the trade markets around 30 to $35 billion a year being sold from the feds. And that's typically being sold to like people like Goldman Sachs and Lone Star and a couple other major players in the space. So you do have that kind of effect coming into it. But those, those guys are typically buying what we call high quality product, you know, loans that are $150,000 and above. They're not really buying the lower balanced stuff because it's, they can't make any money on it. So, or they can't make the kind of money on it that they want to. So I agree with you. If they were to just fire hose it into the market space, it would definitely shift the markets really quickly. The other thing is they're sitting there and they have an agreement with the feds. A lot of that inventory is sitting there because of the banks being bought out by one another big banks buying out little banks because of the downturn of the marketplace. So they have the shadow inventory that's sitting there. And what they have is an agreement with the Fed saying, hey, when and if we sell this, we are going to sell it and we're going to rev share on this. But they don't need to sell it because of profit margins. So they're selling just enough a year per year to control the markets and just enough per year to get nice tax write-offs at the same time. 
I'd have to agree with you. Troy Fullwood, you've been uh, great. Thanks for coming on for two episodes in a row. Really, really appreciate it. Your listener probably wants to get a hold of you or find your company. How do they do that? Two things. You can visit our, our main website, which is pinnacle-investments.com. There's all of our contact information. And then the other thing is if they want to go to Amazon, you can uh, grab a copy of our newly released book. It's an Amazon bestseller called The Power of Paper, written by Troy Fullwood. The great thing about this is there's a whole bunch of free investing tools at the back of the book. There's a website you go, you link to, it doesn't cost you anything, you don't have to put up a credit card, none of that stuff. It's like 50 videos of how to wholesale notes and fun things of that nature. So um, yeah, just go to amazon.com, Troy Fullwood, Power Paper book, and don't forget to leave a review. I appreciate all, all the positive feedback. And with leaving a review, do that and leave a review for our podcast and you could be sipping out of this happiness is passive cash flow mug. (laughs) That said, Troy, thanks for coming on. And until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box. Think outside the box.